Greetings and salutations, and welcome to a much-delayed saga of Steve Rogers. Uh, first off, I'm going to apologize, but not really apologize. Um, there's a COVID thing going on, in case you don't know. Um, and I've been going through a lot of stuff because of it. I got nine kids, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, and it's just excuses. But I'm going to go ahead and say I apologize for uh, not putting an episode out last week. So I'm putting this one out, and then I'm going to put this next week's episode out as well. And then we'll get back on track. I'll do my best to not let you guys down. Or if you weren't let down at all, and you're hearing this later, and you're like, what the fuck is he talking about? Ignore all that shit. But uh, either way, thanks for listening. I appreciate all of you that continue to listen. Um, share the wealth. Tell somebody, if you know somebody who loves podcasts, tell them to check it out. I enjoy doing it, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Obviously, you do or you wouldn't be here. Maybe you fell upon it, and you're obviously not part of the obvious obviousness. Wow, ramble motherfucker. So, um Email address, steve at sagaofsteverogers.com. Sagaofsteverogers.com is the website. You can hear about 15 to 20 episodes wherever you are, but sagaofsteverogers.com is where the archive is. So you could go back and listen to previous episodes. You can search by specific topics. You can search by specific time frames. There's lots of ways to search. You can search by keywords. There's also... Um, Tag story tags in there so you can search by different subject matter. But uh, either way, check out the archive, sagaofsteverogers.com. This is a fan-supported website. So if you're interested in supporting the show, patreon.com forward slash sagaofsteverogers is how you can do that. For the price of a hot dog at Costco, um, you can give a little back to the show and keep the lights on. Not the air conditioning because it's hot as balls out here right now. I'm in Arizona, and it's 114 outside. So wherever you are, you're doing better than me. It's not as hot. But either way, um, today's episode is part one with Tristan Miller. Tristan is a podcaster. He is a stand-up comedian. He is an author. He is an actor. And he is somebody that is struggling with mental illness in his family and in his personal life. So his story is pretty interesting. I hope you enjoy it. He's a really cool guy. There'll be links in the show notes to his podcasts, where you could support him on his Patreon, and ways you can check him out on social media and just support him, follow his story. Um, real fun guy. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Susu Studio. Uh, peace out. Whatever. Rodriguez report, and then on with the show. Hello, and welcome to the Rodriguez report. My name is Asbo Rodriguez. I haven't listened to Howard Stern with any regularity since 2007. Before that, for a couple of years, I had satellite radio in my car and at work, and I listened to Stern. I like Stern. There's really nobody like him. He could pull something out of you in an hour that would take a psychiatrist two years. He could make you say the stupidest thing about yourself and not feel embarrassed about what you just said. In the last decade, I caught snippets of Howard here and there on TV interviews, and also he was judging a TV show that I saw once but I really missed his radio show and the way he was a sounding board for his celebrity guests. Then last Friday, I saw him on Bill Maher's HBO show, and man, 
Let me tell you, he has not lost any of his mojo. If Sigmund Freud were alive, he would not know what to make of Stern. Bill Maher certainly was caught off guard. Bill thought he was the interviewer and Howard was the interviewee. Wrong, Bill. Wrong. It was a master class in manipulation and he left Bill Maher wondering what the hell just happened. Anyway, it's good to see that Howard Stern still has it. It's weird to hear me saying this, but that's your Rodriguez report for the week. Um, he usually does his own outro and intro, but I kind of split two Rodriguez reports into two separate stories. Um, they were not connected tissue, and I liked them separately, so I love him talking about Howard. Huge Howard fan, and I hope you are too. Uh, that's your Rodriguez report. Susu Studio. Now I'm using my shit for his shit. That's your Rodriguez report. And now here's the pot. Welcome to the saga of Steve Rogers. Some of the stuff you are about to hear are not for everyone. If you are a snowflake or easily offended, offended, do don't listen. Enjoy. Queens Library, and then a different three blocks is the Brooklyn Library. It's right next to Bushwick. I lived in Manhattan for about a year, and I worked mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Ah, where in Brooklyn? Um, it was called the Metro Tech Center. It's on Flatbush oh, near yeah. the bridge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, Jay Street Metro Tech. I used to do work at the Starbucks there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, when I was there, there was... Uh, the the entire building was empty. They were redoing it, so we were there for uh, a government project to do with the loan modification stuff that went really bad. So, uh-huh. good times. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I lived in Manhattan. I lived on Wall Street. My address was ninety five Wall Street. It's wow. Yeah, it was way to go. Pretty sick. Well, I wasn't paying for any yeah. of it, so it was it was pretty awesome that I was on the company dime and living, living in a million to a million and a half dollar condo that just it, it's the size of my garage here, but it was uh, in, in Manhattan, so you know, hard, yeah. hard to be yeah. there. Absolutely. How long have you lived in New York? Um, this go around. By the way, let me know when I should start recording on my end. I'm recording now, uh, so you can just hit record whenever. Oh. I'm just. Oh, I'm sorry. No, you're good. Um, I've lived in New York this go around um, for six years, um, about five or six years. I went to school out here in 2010, 2011, and 2010. Um, and I lived here for three years, and then I moved back to my home state of Minnesota for about a, a year and a half, two years, and then so I'm a, and I moved back in like um, late 2014. So I guess, yeah. So you grew up in Minnesota. Yeah, I grew up in Minnesota, in Rochester, Minnesota, primarily. I was 
I was born in South Dakota, raised in Minnesota, sorry, I was born in Minnesota, raised in South Dakota, moved to Minnesota, moved to New York, moved back to Minnesota, and then I moved back out here. So quite, quite stable, as you can tell. <laughs> Lots of bouncing around. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but similar places. It's like you're staying in a little tri-state area of your own tri-states. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um yeah, and growing up in Minnesota and South Dakota was like completely obviously like when I first moved out here it was a huge, huge culture shock. Oh for sure. Of just, you know, like the amount the amount of people and, you know, the different, you know, kinds of people that were around. Because I don't know if you know this, uh both Minnesota and uh and South Dakota are pretty white. Yes. Um yeah, luckily in Minas- in Rochester they were pretty. It was a, it's a decently diverse city for some like for a state like Minnesota because there's the Mayo Clinic there and so a lot of great job opportunities are there and like and there was a fair amount of immigration in the early 2000s. So I felt lucky that way that I was exposed to different cultures, but like obviously not to the same scale as in New York. No, no. Yeah. Um, but yeah, growing up in Minnesota was really great. I'm actually really fond of it. When I was living in Minneapolis, I really enjoyed my time. It was just like, like there's, if you want to be, you know, a professional film actor, like is, which is my main goal, even though I do a bunch of other things, you have to, you know, live in New York or LA or Toronto, I suppose. But like, you know, you can't stay in Minneapolis forever. Right. I mean, you could do dinner theater and small plays and, you know, local stuff, but you're not going to, yeah. you're not going to get cast in a TV show or a movie or a play. In Minneapolis. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like, there's a lot of great theater there. Don't get me wrong. And like, I did a couple of student films and they were great and wonderful experiences. There's a lot of great art in Minneapolis um, specifically. Um, they have a fringe festival almost every year. Um, this year, unfortunately, they had to cancel it, but every other year they've had it for a very long time. What's fringe, what's to... fringe festival? Okay, yeah, sure, I suppose. A fringe festival is an independent arts festival. Um, basically, you pay an application fee and then also to produce there, but they give you a tech and a space for, I think, four performances over the course of, 10 days um it's a similar model to the edinburgh french festival where they do a similar thing only it's over the course of a month and you have to it's a little bit more complicated you have to find your own venue and that sort of thing most of the time in edinburgh but in minnesota they put you up um and i did that last year for my one-man show my my hour of comedy i should say but i've done it previous years when i was living in Minneapolis, and then also when I was first living in Minnesota in Rochester, because Minneapolis is only like a couple hours drive away. So um, my sibling was living up there, and we did a couple of shows there, and it was really, really fun and really, really wonderful. And you you get to see it's a performing arts festival, so it's not just like theater. I was in a sketch show. I've done stand-up there. I've done like a pseudo-dance show. I've seen mime. I've seen, you know parodies i've seen a lot of different theater some of the best theater i've ever seen well live performances i've ever seen and some of the worst too because it's all new works so people are kind of taking a risk and hence you know fringe yeah working working shit out 
Like, yeah, exactly. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Um, but a good, uh, most notably from Edinburgh festival, um, like Fleabag, the show that's on, you know, the BBC and Amazon now, um, I think it might just be Amazon. Anyway, it started as a one woman show in the Edinburgh fringe. So you can like take a concept and really build from it. And in New York, there's a fringe festival that often can lead to off Broadway runs of shows. Wow. I so never, it's a good... never heard of a fringe festival before. We have a lot of, I mean, every place I've lived, I've lived in some pretty big cities, but there's always like, Film festivals and local, local, you know, local theaters and stuff like that. There may have been fringe festivals, and I just never heard of it. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of them around the country and around the world. Um, I've done one in Kansas City a couple of times. That's great. Um, there's a new one in Portland, Maine, that I wanted to go to this year, but obviously with the things the way they are, it didn't work out. Um, Toronto has a big one. Sydney, Australia, like. If you're a performer and you're looking to work some new material out, they're excellent opportunities. Well, so let's back up. I'm going to go yeah. back. Let's back to the beginning. So where were you born? Yeah. Hendricks, Minnesota, um, which is right across the border from South Dakota. My parents were living in Brookings, South Dakota at the time, and it was the nearest hospital. Okay. And yeah. you have any siblings? You mentioned yeah, a sibling, two, so. Yeah, two older siblings, um, an older sister, and then an older sibling. They don't uh, conform to the traditional gender binary, so they are my older sibling now. Okay. And yeah. y- your parents growing up, they first off, were you a good kid? I was, I mean, I like to think so. I know I was like a little terror as like a young, young kid. Um, you know, ages like two to eight, I'm sure I were a pain. Um, but I know when I started like hitting puberty and around that time, uh, I kind of got straightened out because of the fact that like I had two older siblings and I saw how one of them wasn't getting along with my parents and how the other one was kind of ignoring, like, like pushing themselves to the side to, out of concern and I was able to kind of glean from that to just like fall in, not exactly fall in line, but like negotiate with my parents as human beings. Um, but growing up, I actually have been meaning to talk to my folks about this. I don't really know if I was too much of a troublemaker. I think I pushed things and I think I got away with a lot of things being the only boy and the youngest. Hmm. So you, okay. So how, how much age difference is there between you and the middle and then the oldest? Uh, let me think here. Just um, roughly. I don't need exact. They, your, your siblings probably um, listen to this, so they won't get their feelings hurt <laughs> if you're wrong. Yeah, I think um, the, my, the oldest is seven years and then three or four. And then, oh, wait. Yes, three years. Three years and then... Um, Three and then five. Three and then five. Okay. Final answer. <laughs> You're sure. Let's, yeah. Let's, no, let's see what the tape says. Answer. Let's see the more yeah. thing. We checked the tape. <laughs> you are not the father. Um, <laughs> I'm not the father of my siblings. Oh, no. No. 
hate when that happens. My sister, my child, my sister, my child. Um, but yeah, uh, so like growing up, there was a big enough age difference between the, the three of us that I, I didn't realize this until recently that I, I felt pretty isolated, actually. In what and, way? Well, like I was the youngest and the only boy, and so they were even closer in age, and so they they glommed on to each other. And then the oldest sibling of mine, my older sister, she didn't really understand how younger kids were, that like I didn't know as much as she did. And so she didn't treat me particularly respectfully, let's say. She thought I was dumb when what I was was a, you know, a little you're kid. You're a kid, yeah. You're figuring yeah, shit out. Exactly. And so that caused a lot of tension, specifically when she got into her teenage years um, and I was annoying and, you know, a little kid. Um, but yeah, I, I realized that I was kind of isolated. I also was very special and I think I was, I was treated differently by my parents, I think, because I was the only boy and I was the youngest. I was the baby, you know. I'm the baby. Gotta love me. I, I can I can relate. I'm the youngest and I have three older sisters. So I was oh, the, wow. the only boy. And yeah, completely. Yeah. It, it sounds like your parent. Did your parents dote on you? I did. <laughs> um, I, in retrospect, I think so. Yeah. I think I think they doted on like all of us. But I think my mom and I specifically got along a little too well. Um, not like that, but like, yeah, she, she probably was a lot more lenient with me than the other two. And yeah. Um, I, I think my parents also made the choice that they would be, they would try and make their kids happier than they needed to be. If that makes sense, which is, you know, a nice thing to do as a parent. But consequently, I think we all got a little spoiled, but I think I got a little extra. Okay. Um, well, what does that, I mean, what does that look like? That's, I can't picture that. Okay. Uh, well, basically like we all received gifts and we all received toys and stuff like that. But like, I think, um, I think my parents really, and I think this is true of my two older siblings as well. I think my parents really indulged me in things I wanted to do, whether it was my interest in movies or my interest in Star Wars like I have all these toys from my childhood still and like my, yeah, my interest in like Lord of the Rings and stuff like that. And like they were really indulgent with that for whatever reason. And they were with my older siblings too. Like my sister, my older sister did a lot of like martial arts training when she was a, a young woman, like when she was between the ages of like 13 to 18 and she still does it now, but she was like, really really into it she would be going to classes like three or four days a week and so they were really indulgent with that Damn. And yeah my 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 sister was sorry my other sibling was like interested in writing and painting and they were always really encouraging of us and i think that turned into indulgence at a certain point not to any fault of their own but like i know they both grew up in a certain way. And I've spoken with my parents where they were like, we wanted to give you the childhood that we, you know, a loving childhood that we didn't necessarily feel growing up because they're both from like South Dakota and they were grew up in like the seventies and eighties. So you can kind of imagine. Yes. Um, so they wanted to make sure that we felt loved and 
we did, but I do think for me, I can't speak to my old siblings because I'm not them, but for me, that really skewed the barometer for how much love and affection means somebody actually loves you. Does that make sense? Yes, 100%. And and yeah. I kind of I kind of worry about that. Like I'm older than you. I don't I don't I'm not sure how old you are. But you said your parents grew up in the sixties or seventies and eighties. So yeah, I'm fifty fifty five. Sorry, say fifty four. Trying to make my age younger. I'm fifty five. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just married for the third time. My wife had seven kids when we got married. So I've had no kids until I was fifty. Married my wife, and now I have seven. Complete wow. culture shock. Yeah, um, I bet. And so I'm doing a little bit of what your parents kind of did to you is like I had a shit childhood and I did without my parents were really poor. My parents got divorced when I was really young. So we did without a lot of stuff. And now I'm trying to make it so my kids don't have to do without. Mm-hmm. But I also want them to have the right values of, hey, this is this is icing on the cake. Like this isn't everybody gets this. You should appreciate this because oh, yeah. it could all go away tomorrow. Um, and I, and I, it's, it's hard to impart that on people. It's hard to explain to kids, like, I'm, I'm not here to entertain you. I'm not your toy. I'm not, I'm not your yeah. only provider. When you turn 16, time for your ass to get a job. Like you're going to get a job and you're going to have that job and go to school and still keep your grades up. Like the expectation is you'll start working when you can start working because you want to instill that work ethic in them. It's so different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's a tricky balance. I think my parents did a good job because I, for good or ill, have an insane work ethic and drive that I don't know exactly where it comes from other than seeing, I guess, how hard my parents worked. Because that was another thing, like, like I said before, they made the choice to work very hard and make sure that we had a good, like a happy childhood. But that also came out of the expense of like having the best cars or like, you know, buying a house versus renting a house maybe and stuff like other decisions like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's a very tricky balance to instill people in a work ethic, but also give them a level of, um, you know, a, a step up from yeah. your childhood. Yep. And from what you were saying of like, I'm not sure to entertain you. And that's something like I've worked up until recently I worked in childcare. And so it is one of those things of like with very little kids, you, you specifically if you're just their teacher and not their parents, they kind of view you as a source of like fun a lot of the time. Oh yeah. But, but like also there are times where I'm like, I need to sit you down and say, you can't just shove that other kid. I need you to understand that. Like, and that's really difficult. And you know, I don't know how old one of your seven kids is, but like that's a hard balance to find. God bless. Well, they start, the oldest is now 22, and we're okay. now actually adopting two more. The two of us are adopting oh. together, so we'll have nine total. <laughs> but wow. oldest is 22, and the youngest just turned four last month. Oh, well, congratulations. Yikes. Don't bad. congratulate. Yeah. That's terrifying to me. Okay. <laughs> That's fair. It's... Well, I mean, it's better than the alternative. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, that's great. Four is really like once again, just from working child hair is, care is really interesting. Of like they're they, they're starting to know what's up. It's really interesting. It's you know, even at two they start to really realize things. But like 
they're really um, articulate about expressing what what they think is happening around them, which I think is very cool. Yeah, it's interesting. You see them kind of coming online, like yeah, in good and bad ways. Like you'll see my, my wife will send you know my son Ben, to, you know, go stand in the corner, put him in timeout, mm-hmm. and he'll start crying. But he doesn't cry like I want out. He cries for me. Or if I put him in the car, oh, sure. he cries for mom because it's like, dad did this, fuck dad. I want mom. Mom did this, fuck mom. I want dad. It's like you're already, you're three, now four, and you're already figuring out, oh, I can go to the other one. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's really interesting. Yeah, that is tricky. Good times. And they, they're, they're coming from foster care, so they're, de- they're developmentally behind their age in some ways. So it's, it's that- interesting. That is. That must be very challenging at times and very rewarding as well. Yeah, it's – I mean, like I said, when I married my wife, she had seven kids, so it was the youngest of the original seven is 12. So I don't have to go, hey, sit down and eat your food. You need to clean everything off your plate. You need to make sure yeah. you do the, the – I don't have to check her mouth as a 12-year-old to make sure she's swallowing the food. Or the other yeah. night, the, the four-year-old, Ben – like, I was like, you can't get up from this table until you eat all your food. Well, he stuffed all his food in his mouth of and course. then put the plate in the sink. And then a half hour later, he had his mouth filled like a chipmunk. And he was like, <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm like, open your mouth. And he just had asparagus quiche all just filling in his mouth. And I'm like, oh, my God, you've got eggs just squished in your cheeks. Like, what is wrong with you? Why would you think that was the right thing to do? He's like, I wanted to get up out of the table. Like, why would you think that's better? <laughs> but yeah, but so in, in the 45 minutes since you got up, you could have swallowed that shit. And he was like, nah, nah, just not. Nah, I'm not about it. Nah, I got up. That's what I wanted. My goal was to get up, not to eat this asparagus quiche. So unbelievable. <laughs> So your parents, what did your parents do? You said your parents indulged you, but you talked kind of about finance. Like they, they indulged you guys as opposed to having nice cars and buying a house versus renting. So what did they do for a living? Um, my father has always been in, in management, um, like, but he has a degree in computer science. So he worked at like IBM and stuff like that. Um, that's actually why we moved to Rochester is because that – is one of the main headquarters for IBM in the States. Um, and so he has always been like a supervisor okay. um, in, in that sort of thing. My mom, when we were growing up, she, we, they decided to homeschool us. She has a degree in teaching, so she knew what she was doing. So she was a stay-at-home mom. And then since then, she's gotten her master's in education and has become a professor at a couple local colleges. Wow. Yeah. I have Very now be- I have now become a, a stay-at-home teacher as well, but not by choice. Oh, good. <laughs> no, <laughs> not by choice. I'm working. I mean, my job, I'm working remote from my job, but I also have, you know, kids everywhere doing homeschool. And working. It's, this coronavirus thing is, is uh, kicking our ass here. I, I would imagine that's got to be very difficult with that amount of kids all running around yeah. inside. Especially with a toilet paper uh, embargo. There's a lot of asses <laughs> in this house. And, yep. And, and you know, it's it might be a little hard to explain to a, a four-year-old how to use a bidet. So, And we don't have yeah. one anyway. But <laughs> sit on here and have this water squirt on your bum. And it's not weird. And don't tell anybody. Just, just. Yeah. <laughs> 
but don't tell anybody, but it's not weird, but I swear, exactly. don't tell anybody, I swear it's not weird. Exactly. My dad makes me use his toilet and he squirts water on my butt. Like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah, what? We need you to fill out a form. Anyway. <laughs> so you're, and your parents still together? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, feel very lucky about that. I'm one of the few actors that I know, an artist that I know that have like parents that are still hanging out. One of the few um, human beings, forget about narrowing it down to a profession. Shit, most people I know, like I said, this is my third marriage. So, I yeah. mean, most people I know have gone around the park a couple times. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm really, once, I, once again, I'm very proud of them for that. I know it, that's got to be difficult. Um, but yeah, they, I guess they've been married for 32 years, 33 wow. years, something like that. Yeah. Impressive. Yeah. And so you said that they were very supportive of your, all of you kids, but you know, your uh, proclivities towards film and, and things of that nature, they're still super supportive, I assume. Yeah. Yeah, they absolutely are. Um, they've been really supportive during this whole issue as well. Um, of like, but yeah, um, I remember, and this is one of my most fond, fondest memories from like being a teenager. I was 18 I was really nervous about moving from Minnesota to New York. Well, yeah, no shit. It's it's like I I went on the space shuttle. Like, no, it's completely different. New York is a different planet. Absolutely. I was really nervous about that. And I was nervous about going to just acting school. So because originally I applied to a state college. Sure. And I was planning on double majoring in journalism and, and theater. Didn't work out. So I ended up going to a two year conservatory here in New York. And I was really nervous about just going to be an actor and just pursuing that and kind of not like self-doubting, but like just nervous about like, that's a big commitment. And I said to my mom, I was like, do you think I can do this? And my mother said, well, your dad's really practical and doesn't bullshit essentially. And he thinks you can do it. So I think you can do it. And it was really lovely and really empowering to then move to New York, kind of having the blessing of my parents of like going and like, no, we think you can do it. I remember one time, this was in high school, I did a play and my dad, uh, I was playing like a, a bully, a high school bully that was like, it was one of those plays that's like meant to be a morality tale. I was basically racist and like the character was racist and I was being mean to a, a Muslim person that had just moved in and started going to the school and I was making fun of her. And my dad came up to me afterwards and he's like, you did a really good job. I knew like a bunch of basically asshats like that in high school. And it was really believable and natural. I was like, great, cool. And like, that made me really happy and proud. And like, they've been so supportive of my various like um, avenues, various avenues I've been exploring as an artist as well, well as acting over the years. Like my dad listens to my podcasts and stuff like that, which I think is like, Thank God <laughs> they do. Um, but yeah, they've been, they've always been incredibly supportive and like been willing to help 
in whatever way they can. And sometimes they don't fully understand how to because they're not in the entertainment business, but they're always willing to try. Does your dad give you notes on your podcast? <laughs> no, not exactly notes, but he'll like let me know when a good one. Oh, okay. <laughs> when a good one happens. Like in particular, he's like, hey, I like this one. This one was very professional is what he'll say because it's an interview podcast. And so he's like, okay, this one was good. You didn't like fuck around talking around about yourself too much, you know, or whatever. And both he and my mom have been like, it's improved so much. And like hearing their feedback has been great because also like, I'm sure you experienced this. Sometimes you just don't get listener feedback. And it's just like, I want to know objectively, what could I be doing better with this program? You know what I mean? hundred percent. Yeah. But I, I don't get any feedback from my family. Both my parents are deceased. So like I said, I'm older than you, but it, my parents my parents probably would listen, but my family doesn't. My wife doesn't listen. She's My wife will come on all the time, but yeah. uh, she has zero interest in She's like, I can't stand talk radio, <laughs> and I don't want to hear you do it. Like, I don't want to hear yeah. Adam Carolla do it or Rush Limbaugh do it. I sure as fuck don't want to listen to my husband do it. When I can hear you talk all the time, then I'm going to get in my car and listen to you do it some more. <laughs> Absolutely. I was like, but it's, it, it, it's like I'm talking to other people. Like I just did a six part series with a guy that's in a federal penitentiary for the next 40 years. Yeah. I was like, you know, you should listen to that. She's like, nah, nah, I'm good. <laughs> like after I, after I do an interview, I'll come in and I give her like the high cliff notes and she's like, oh, okay. That sounds yeah. like a lot of fun. I was like, you want to listen? She's like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm sure this will be the high cliff notes that you give her for this one. <laughs> Well, I mean, well, hey, you know what? I just complained about you a lot. Exactly. Well, hear? I do that quite often. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she, she wouldn't care. She, if she was sitting right there, she'd just give me the side eye and I keep looking away. It would be fun. Of course. Um, how many episodes? Do you, well, you have multiple podcasts, right? Yeah, I have a couple. Um, for the main one that my my dad listens to, um, uh, we're coming up on a hundred. Nice, Mazel Tov. Yeah. That's a that's a milestone, man. Thank you. Yeah, I've been doing it over the last like three-ish years, and I do it every other week, and that's why it's that. But yeah, I'm going back and I'm re-interviewing some folks um, for it, and that's been really interesting because it's about mental health, and sometimes that changes um, for people. It's constantly fluid. Yeah, constant moving. Yeah, and so checking in with people has been really interesting. Um. My dad is also, also like for my Patreon, he's on a podcast of mine, a history podcast that I used to do. And now I just do like one, one a month. And so he actually is on it and it's really fun. It's like an excuse to talk to my dad for an hour, you know, uh, to check in and stuff like that. And that's been really rewarding. Yeah. Um, I saw that. I saw that as one of your Patreon incentives when I was checking it out earlier. Yeah. Because it, yeah, mentioned, it um, mentioned like, a his, some, I can't remember the name of it, but a history podcast. And I was like, I'm looking at your podcast and don't see that listed. And now I know why, because it's just, mm-hmm. it's just the incentive. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I used to do it every week with like, we went through three hosts. I, at one point I was doing five podcasts. Um, Damn. Yeah. And so I, I went down to three and one of them is a, whenever my girlfriend feels like recording podcast. So I really am doing two regularly at this point, which is, I think a reasonable amount of work. Sure. Um, but before when I was doing five, it was just like a lot. 
was a lot to handle. Um, and so I had to step back. Um, but yeah, the other one that I do is called Amateur Detective Club, which is a mystery media review show. Right now we're going through Agatha Christie's Poirot series from the BBC, and we watch it, and then we recap it, and we review it. And it's um, also, uh, we attempt to be funny. <laughs> so crossing humor and Agatha Christie doesn't, I mean, I'm not an Agatha Christie person. I love detective stories. It's mostly what I read. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm an avid reader. I'm usually reading one or two books constantly since high school. Wow. Um, but Agatha Christie would never have been on my reading list because I can't, <laughs> I can't watch movies or TV series or, or read books that don't take place now. It's weird. Interesting. Oh, but it, they can, like Star I could watch Star Trek Next Generation or any of the Star Treks that take mm-hmm. place in a different time because it's not so much about the time. It's about the story. It's about the people. It's about the characters. It's about mm-hmm. the life. But it's not like, oh, and it's pew, 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 like space guns and like horse shit. It's about the people story <laughs> in Star Trek. You know what I mean? They'll throw in an alien, yeah. but it's about the interaction of this race and this race and these people in first mm-hmm. time, like stuff like that. That's why I can enjoy it. But Agatha Christie would be difficult for me, but it, I wouldn't have thought humor would be easy with an Agatha Christie story. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, well, I, I don't know about like Miss Marple or the other ones, but Poirot is a character. Her like number one detective character um, is kind of like Monk. He's very like fastidious and he's like a little obsessive compulsive. And there's actually a lot of like, he's fussy. There's a lot of humor out of him being fussy. Like for example, in the latest episode, a couple of people were like digging and he like put himself off to the side on a rock while people are like really getting in the, you know, grimy. And he's just like, I will not do this thing. Um, And like, he's kind of curt as well and so he like dunks on people so there's a lot of humor there but also there's like since it's an older series it started in the in 89 there's some acting choices that are pretty fun and there's like you know and there's a lot of stuff that you can like either poke kind of fun at while still enjoying it or like or like a lot of it also comes from the fact that um I'll just interrupt whatever the heck it is we're talking about and just like go on a tangent. Like we end up talking about food a lot and like that, I don't know, that breeds some humor. It's, it's not, it's not as tricky as you might think as there's like a lot of murder, but it's, it's still a pretty light and fun and it's family friendly podcast. Like we bleep out if we curse or whatever. Yeah. So it's like a PG Okay. Yeah. And that's the one your dad listens to and enjoys? Um, That's the one. My mom will listen to that one. My dad will listen to the mental health one. He's more interested in, like, he really loves, like, NPR and stuff like that. So he'll really, he, like, listens to This American Life regularly. And so he's really interested in, like, stories of other people and stuff. So he'll, he'll, uh, he'll, like, much like you were suggesting, like, he'll listen to it for the guest and not me. Yeah. Okay. He's like, I, I just happen to know a good interview podcast. My son happens to, you know, make it. See, if only my dad was so he could tell people at his work to listen to this. <laughs> and that's, uh, that's the one that's called Positive and Negative? That is correct, yeah. What'd you just drop? Yeah. Tell the truth. Okay, so 
to what I just dropped. Um, <laughs> Sounded is... like, let me guess. Wait, wait, let me guess. Okay. Was You're it? Never going to. No. Was it China? It sounded like a no. teacup. No. All right. No. Um, you're close in as much as like the material is hollow, kind of like that. It's a little figurine of a man bowling that I got when I visited L.A. from a store called Wacko. It's in Los Feliz. Um, but, yeah, it's just like a little a little figurine. I'll send you a picture of it. Maybe. Cool. Yeah, it's, send it to yeah, me and I'll put little, it in the show notes. People could go, what the fuck yeah. is a figurine of a bowl? There it is. It's right here on the show <laughs> yeah, notes. Yeah, yeah. It's a little plastic figurine of a guy bowling. Because I was like, this is weird. It's a dollar. I'll take it. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. So you, what was the name of the school that you went to when you moved to Los, uh, to California, uh, New York? To New York. It was the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts. It sounds a lot more prestigious than it is, but it's a good school. And it's um, just an acting school, right? That is correct. Um there's a two-year program and a three-year program. Um, I did two years. One is just basic acting, and the second year is all based around film and television. And um, it's actually a really good school if you want to go into TV and film as opposed to just, like, acting in general because a lot of my actor friends got, like, BFAs from four-year colleges and have no idea how to, like, how a set works, a movie set works. So getting a lot of mock experience there was really incredibly helpful. Um, but it's a good school, and I'm happy I went there. Um, and, yeah, um, I, had a, I had a decent time there. Emotionally, it was a little fraught, but, like, being 18 to 21, who isn't, you know? Sure, 100%. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What was it like? So had you ever lived anywhere but with your parents? Like, no, no, I truly just got tossed <laughs> off the deep end. I'd never lived man. anywhere. Oof. Yeah, they, they, we opted to, rather than trying to room with people in an apartment, we decided for me to stay in the dorms, despite it being more expensive, um, just because of, for that reason, that there was like a support system around me. Sure. Um, but yeah, it was a lot specifically. Like I remember those first couple of months, I felt so lonely and so strange. I had a roommate, but he and I like didn't not get along, but we just like didn't have anything in common. So we were like completely neutral to each other. And then halfway through the semester, he ended and ended up moving in with uh, another person that was in our, in our group. Um, the way a lot of acting conservatories work is they like, they make essentially a class or a group. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the, the same, like eight people you're going to be working with throughout the year. And so he had made friends with someone else in our group and, uh, moved in with him in the dorms. And so I was alone for two semesters out of four Damn. because yeah, it was really lucky, but also like, also tough looking, and scary and depressing and yeah, it was, it was a lot looking back. Like yeah. it was nice having the place to myself, but it was like. It was difficult. I, my, I had a friend at the time and we ended up calling like almost every day and like talking for hours on the phone because he was a good friend of mine when I was in high school and we did a bunch of community theater together. And so, you know, that helped, but it was like really looking back, I was like pretty depressed and pretty like mood swingy even then. 
What city was this school in? Um, it was in New York. No, New York City. Yeah, it was. In, yeah, it was in New York City in Chelsea. Okay. Um, up on Nineteenth. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. I bet it yeah. Was, so like, my niece went to. So when I was living in New York, uh, she came out there to look at an acting school there. I can't remember the name of the school. That's why I was asking you the name. I was going to see if the name of the school you went to triggered a memory, but it didn't. Mm-hmm. But it was a school that had a, a site in New York and then one in California, and she ended up going to the mm-hmm. one in California, um, but, mm-hmm. but didn't end up graduating. That's why I was like, wonder if it was the same place, but I think that place was in, it, it wasn't in Chelsea. Um, yeah. Was it um, New York Film Academy? I believe so. Yeah. I yeah. believe so. She ended I up going to California, and then did, she didn't graduate. She, you know, spent three and a half years for the two-year program, and it was it was bad times. Lots of bills still for it. My sister's still paying for it. It's awesome. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, and she works at the yeah. Apple Store, so she's using those acting skills to <laughs> be a genius at the at the Genius Bar. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But yeah, that I mean, was always. Depression, depression in that city kind of go hand in hand. It it just there's oh, for sure. so many people, but it's it's so weird. Like people, it, it, there's so many people, but there's so little contact. I think you and I talked about this a little bit when we were texting back and forth, and I was like, "Man, I lived there, and and I was there for a year. I'm in Manhattan." millions of people passing me each day and I don't remember smiling at anyone or looking at anyone. Everybody looks down. Yeah. There's no eye contact. You're on the subway and you don't look at people. You don't talk to people. You just go about your business. It was the best of times and worst of times. I'm living in a million dollar apartment and I didn't talk to another human being for days sometimes. So Ugh. that's rough. Yeah. Rough times, man. I, yeah. You were the same yeah. thing. I mean, you were there at 18. I was, you know, I was a lot older and I, you know, could make choices on my own, but you were 18, never lived anywhere else. And this is your first experience in the real world. And wow. yeah, which, which, yeah, it was, it was a bit crazy. And it was like, I didn't understand that. Like not all cities operated this way. Like <laughs> when I moved to Minneapolis after living here for a while, like it was such a, you know, despite living on my own, well, with a roommate, it was still like just so different. Like the way people treat you, the way, like, I remember every time I visit my family in Minnesota, like, I remember the last time I did, uh, someone, like, I was at a Walmart, number one, that's like a culture shock in and of itself. Yes. Going to a Walmart from living in New York and then going and someone just saying, hey, how are you? Like one of the people that works there rather than, like, I was like, don't talk to me. What What is going on? Yep. <laughs> All right. Are you got a problem? You know, and I was just like, oh, fascinating. Um, but yeah, when I was, it, w- it was a lot to deal with when I was younger. And specifically when I started like living in an actual apartment rather than in the dormitories, like that's a, like, it, it was a weird transition to adulthood. But also, and John Hodgman talks about this in one of his books, he's a comedian and writer. Um, uh, in one of his books, Vacation Land, of like New York will suspend your adolescence a little bit longer because if there's an issue, you you call the super who is essentially like your parent. 
You know what I mean? You don't have to take care of your apartment, actually. Even if you own your apartment, there's still, you probably have someone on hand to, like a superintendent, just to come in and fix things on retainer. So it's, it was this weird thing of like, I still, I still feel like I've never fully experienced what it's like to be a full responsible adult. Like, it's very rare that I have to like, fix something in my own home, you know? Yeah. And it was the exact opposite for me because I was, you know, God, I don't want to guess how old I was when I was there. Let's say I was 40. I'm sure I was older than that. But let's say I was 40 years old. I had, you know, raised myself, done my own shit. Like you're in New York and you can't get in your car and go to the grocery store and then bring groceries home. You pick up whatever you can and you carry it on the subway. Then you walk from the subway station to your apartment up the stairs or in the elevator up to your apartment. That's just as much as you can carry. Like it's not, yeah. it's not like, Oh, I'm just going to get in the car and I'll go to the grocery store and I'll pick up today's food. Now you better plan some shit. Like you don't just, <laughs> it, it's not as easy as eh, I'll just go to Walmart. It's right up the street. or I'll go to target or Costco or whatever. I'll go to, you know, go pick something up or I'll just run to the movies or whatever. Everything needs to be planned because nothing's right there. Yeah. Weird. And then, yeah, and you have to like take into account whether or not the trains are going to run on time or yep. whatever. And the cost of you things know? is ridiculous. Like like I said, I was yeah. let's say 40. The like if you watch the prices right and they show a pack of Oreos. And they're like the price of Oreos. How much is Oreos? Well, if you're if you're in Arizona where I'm at, and you go to Walmart and they're 2 for $5, so I'm going 250. Yeah. No, they're $7.25. Well, that's the yeah. manufacturer's suggested retail price. But that's what you pay everywhere in New York. There's no yeah. discount shit, and you're, it skews your thought process of how far money will go and how much things are. You're like, a deodorant should be $6. No, it shouldn't. They're two, <laughs> they're two twenty five or something like that. Like It shouldn't be that yeah. much, but the money goes further other places, but you also don't have the... You know, the people right there in the, I mean, you're in the entertainment industry. That entertainment industry needs to be where you are. You can't do what yeah. you want to do in Boise. Yeah. If I was just a comedian and podcaster and not trying to make films, I probably, specifically if I was just a podcaster, I would have moved to somewhere cheap and just been like sure. pumping it out there. Yep. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I remember when I first moved to Minneapolis and once again, I went to a Walmart and like they had this frozen pizzas for like a, a literal dollar. I I almost started crying. Like it was <laughs> such a shock, which is such a sad thing because like they're like, you know, $5 or whatever yep. here. And like, yeah, it, it is such a difference. And it was one of those things of like, I, I assumed like every apartment was that way. And then when I got, it was the same price point when I moved back. I was like, okay, I can play this X amount of dollars in rent because that's what I was paying in New York. And we found an apartment that way. It, like it was so much nicer. For like sure. it was just insane. Yep. And, and then I look at like what I'm paying now. I'm like, Oh, this is like a mortgage on a house. Like I could just be buying a home for sure. Anywhere else in the world. Yeah. But not and there. <laughs> not exactly. Nope. And that's the most frustrating thing. It's like the goal is for me has always been like, I want to make enough money where I can go and just buy a house somewhere random. So I always have that property and I can, you know, and then have that as a fallback. 
uh, or like, you know, keep all my junk there and then like rent out an apartment like a normal person here. Yep. You know what I mean? 100%. But, but that's, you know, almost impossible in this economy, you know. But yeah, it was, it was a huge culture shock going back and forth and back and forth. And like even growing up in South Dakota, it was even smaller. Like I, I grew up in a very small town. And all my family, like my extended family in South Dakota, they all live in and around farms. Like my uncle owned a ranch for a while. Like I come from that kind of people. Okay. Um, you know, and then moving from there to a slightly bigger city in Rochester and then moving to like, it was incremental steps. But it was like, my brain was still wired for like not that amount of people. And like the thing I always say is like to live here is to have anxiety just because there's so much going on. Oh, a hundred percent. There's you have to be so aware. Yep. Your head's constantly on a swivel. You feel like you're in a video game, like you're in call of duty all the time, except you don't have an assault (laughs) rifle and there's no jihad trying to kill you. It's just, what is everything that's going on? You don't want to walk without looking down because people spit and piss and whatever on the streets. You're like, I don't want to step in any of that. But you also don't want to not look at the people to see who's coming near you. Like it's Mm -hmm. constant, it's constant hypervigilance. Cause if you're not, it'll be really bad for you. Really bad. And I'm not trying to make New York sound like a terrorist, like, like a third world country. Like (laughs) it's beautiful. I saw some of the most beautiful people and the most beautiful things but I also, you know, stepped in my fair share of human feces and saw people pissing yeah. in the subway train, like just unbelievable mm-hmm. nonsense. There's, it's the best of times and the worst of times. It, it truly was. Yeah. I remember when I was moving to Minneapolis, I had um, a, an ex-girlfriend of mine. Like we were ex-girlfriend and boyfriend then was driving me across the country just because she was like, you know sure I'll do a road trip and we were am- amicable enough but we packed up most of my stuff and we, we drove we're driving out of the city and we're going across the bridge right before we hit the bridge I see a homeless man pull up his pants and he was clearly just taking a shit and I was like this is the perfect way to end my stay here in New York <laughs> like perfectly encapsulized everything this beautiful vista of the bridge and then just a man defecating yeah, that happened one morning. My my friend and I were taking the subway. So like I said, we lived on Wall Street. So we're taking the two train from Manhattan to Brooklyn. And this guy gets on and he's got two huge garbage bags and he puts them down and he goes walking between the subway trains. Now, if you've never been to New York and you've just watched movies, people do that shit all the time. But in the real world, you don't. You don't move between the trains the, the cabins when it's moving mm-hmm. and there's signs that tell you like, don't go between the cars when it's moving. You can go when it stops. So the car's moving. This guy just drops his garbage bags, which reek to high heaven. And then he goes between the two cabins and I'm like, what the hell's going on? Is this guy going to jump? Like, Oh my God, I don't want to be on the news. I don't want to know anything about this. He comes back in and he's just covered in piss. And I was like, what the hell is going on? He went between the two cars while the train is moving and just peed. And the wind just threw it back over him. He was literally soaked in his own urine. And I was like, oh my God, this is, this is the, this is the most disgusting thing I've seen since I've been here. And that's saying a lot. Yeah. I really feel for those people. 
like that's it's gross but it's also like damn i that must suck to live that way that is the worst like oh it's a massive mental health issue that guy didn't i mean he didn't just wake up one day and he's not in his right state of mind going i think this is the perfect place to urinate like obviously there's a huge huge problem but yeah it it becomes a problem for everybody around him also because now you're Mm -hmm sitting on the seat where he may have sat yesterday or you're touching the the handrail where he held yes like yep yep constantly you're thinking like now i'm like i wish i had gloves i had a mask i had all this corona shit like whenever i was walking around manhattan oh believe me when when all this stuff hit it it became apparent how terrible things were in the city because like they were like oh yeah we're now like desanitizing all the subway cars twice a day and everyone was like you weren't doing that already (laughs) what the fuck and it was like like it was also one of those things that there was a bunch of pictures that came across like once the subways really started getting clean and stuff it's like there's just no rats anymore there's no this it's like hey why wasn't this always the case like the, the the level of things that new yorkers are willing to put up with is fascinating it is but yeah i absolutely agree it's a huge mental health issue because like either you know even if you don't start even if what causes you to be homeless isn't a mental health issue like two months into being homeless you're going to have a mental health issue you're going to be depressed anxious and like it's going to take a psychological toll on you. And so like, it's a, a, a thing that specifically if you started with a mental health issue, it really feeds into it and it really becomes a cycle. And it's something that's like I, something I feel very passionately about in as much as like, I know I like under the right circumstances, I could be there like that. You know what I mean? Like my gosh. Wow. That, um, yeah. I, I mean, I never really thought about, depression and that city other than for myself. And I I guess I thought it was just me like, eh, this place just isn't for me. Like I'm not vibing with this place, even though, like I said, best of times, worst of times. Like I saw some of the most beautiful buildings and sky, like my, my best friend and I went to the New York public library where they shot that scene at Ghostbusters at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Holy fuck. That's the lion. Like that's the thing from the beginning Mm -hmm. of the Ghostbusters movie. And we went inside and it was an exhibit and we saw like, there was a uh, God. What, what, I can't remember what the exhibit was. There was a display case, and it had a a clan robe, and it was an authentic robe from like wow. back in back in the day. And it was a white bed sheet, and there's buttons on it. And I'm looking at these buttons, and I'm reading the little placard telling us what it is. And I'm getting, I'm feeling every emotion. And then I look at the buttons, and they're all unmatching buttons. They're all different buttons. And I was like. This guy was in such a hurry to get his racism on. He didn't give a fuck what his robe looked like. He was like, honey, just sew some shit on there. Make that robe stay closed and get me out there. Like, let me start being horrible. And I I just, I'm standing there in front of this glass case and I just started crying. Like, I was like, this, I felt every emotion that was in that case, man. It was unbelievable. Good Lord. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a beautiful, terrible, lousy, wonderful place. It is. And it's one of those things of like if you're living here or you're considering living here or you moved here for a little bit, like you have to really think about does the wonderful outweigh the terrible? And you really have to ebb and flow with that. It's it's a tricky place to live. But it is 
some of the, you know, and if you're an artist, like some of the most beautiful art. Unbelievable. Happened. Yeah. Like yep. I've seen a lot of Broadway shows. I've gone to the Met a number of times, you know, you get to see all these wonderful opportunities and like you have all these wonderful opportunities to see these beautiful, wonderful things. And like I saw the first time I saw Van Gogh in person, I got really emotional. I almost started crying and like it, it like it gets to you. And there's so much to see here yep. that you're never going to run out of things. And, but and it's things you'll never world. you'll never get to see if you don't go there. Like, exactly. Like, you, can, you can see the roadshow of you know, whatever play it is, you want to go see American Idiot, you see the road tour of it, but it's not the same thing as seeing it on Broadway. It's just not. You've seen yeah. Lion King in your little city, like, that's fantastic. But if you didn't see it on right by Times Square, or right off Broadway, you didn't see it. Like, it's just not the same. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Um, so you left and then came back. Why'd you leave? Oh, um two reasons. One, I was not doing well mentally or physically, honestly. Okay. So I was like, I think I need a change. But more importantly, during that time, I was seeing uh, this woman, this girl at the time, like, um, you just like downgraded her from woman to girl. Everybody caught that. Well, like she, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, with you, we were, <laughs> that was funny. we were both really young is what I mean to say. Like I was also still yet a boy. Like she was like 18. I was like 20. Okay. Right. And she's in college. She lives in Minnesota. She's going to college in Minnesota. I, I, I moved there for her. She tells me, don't do it. It's fine. Stay doing your life. I'm like, I think I need to work some shit out anyhow. And I want to be near you. And, um, and that's the main reason I moved. Okay. And yeah. And it was to take some time off and to like figure my, my shit out because like I was clearly already having an issue with like, um, abusing alcohol. And this is one of my first attempts to try and get sober and straighten myself out. And I thought moving, you know, like a lot of people do that, like, oh, I'll move. This will fix everything. Oh, sure. A fresh perspective. This will this will change a lot. And it did. And it changed my mindset a lot. And um, a lot of first steps of of recovery were taken there, but like not to the degree that I thought, obviously. And like, I was also kind of in the mindset of like, I think one of the reasons I'm, de- you know, the main reason I'm depressed is I'm not around this, uh, this person I love. And so once I'm around this person I love, you know, it'll, it'll go away. Not the case. Um, but yeah, yeah. So that was a huge impetus as well. And like, also just the cost of living in New York. I was just like, I don't know why I would put up with this. It's insurmountable. And that, like, it's just insane. Yeah. Yeah. And now I know why I would put up with this and a chance of having a career that I want and something I want desperately, you know, like, so that was the main reason though, was I I was seeing this person and I moved for them. Okay. And you moved back. She lived in the city where your parents were. So did that kind of put, I mean, was that yes or no? Um, We had grown up together. We knew each other as teenagers. So we were both from the same um, city. Um, but at the time she was, we both lived over that summer and a little bit and then, and a little bit longer, um, in Minneapolis together, more or less. She lived with a friend and then like, you know, we were in a relationship. So we hung out around each other's house. 
a little bit. And there was like a two week period where she was living with me because of the lease situation. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But you um, were a lot nearer back. your family than you were when you were in New York and they were there. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I was living on my, my own and then they were living in Rochester. And so it's like a two hour drive. So we saw each other pretty frequently. My, yeah. And then, um, and then she moved back to my girl, my then girlfriend moved back to Rochester. Um, and then we did that for a little bit. Like we swapped bus rides up and down because neither of us drive. Neither, neither of us had a license. I still don't know how to drive. Um, and so we did that for a little bit. And then we were planning on moving to New York together. And this is true. And it was just slowly dissolving. Um, we were at that point of a relationship. I don't know if you've ever been here, but like when we started like, uh, well, let's see other people and also us. Like we'll be our primary people, but we can go and, you know, do whatever we want. That's always like for me a sign of like, okay, this it happened twice in relationships in the past. I'm like, this means this is dissolving. We should just, you know, just we should be good. Anyhow. I kid you not, like a week before we were set to move in together and to find a place in New York to stay, she's like, I can't do this anymore. And I was like, what? And she's like, I don't want to, we're done. But then we both still moved to New York. So it was one of those things of like, it was just kind of confusing and weird and she was rooming with one of my roommate's girlfriends. And so like there was enough cross access that like it, it was a weird period. It, it was wasn't a, a real period. break. It sounds like she was still always on the periphery. A little bit, like for a, a little bit. And then eventually she moved somewhere else and then moved back to Minnesota. And she's doing great. We actually talked the other day. Um, and I'm doing well now. And so like we're both like we both got exactly what we wanted in the end, it, cool. which is, I, I think beautiful. Um, also a little frustrating because there's part of me that's really bitter and been like, ah, you shouldn't, you don't deserve that. But she does. Obviously everyone deserves happiness. Um, but yeah, it was a weird thing of like, we were kind of in contact, but not really. And I was like really, really emotional about it. And it, it was a really hard thing to get over. It took years which is, in retrospect, very strange <laughs> to me. And it's weird how you can move on. You can love someone so intensely and so deeply, and then, and then just, like, years later, that person doesn't mean the same to you. And, and that's so strange to me. And I would often, when I was getting over feeling the way I did about her, because the other thing is we'd been like friends for seven years before we even started dating. We'd loved each other for a very long time and, and missing that part of my life and then forgetting about that. I, I would then feel guilty for moving on, which oh, is sure. such a, which is such a pain in the ass and not helpful at all. No. Yeah. I, and I still have that, like not about the specific person, obviously, but I still have that like, instinct to feel guilty for succeeding and i think you know i think it's because i grew up protestant or something i don't know it sounds it sounds um i don't know if it has 
I don't know if it's because of religion or if it's that home. I mean, you, you mentioned your your home life was very nurturing, and it was, you know, mm-hmm. gi- give, 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 you know, giving to you. And this was not giving to you anymore. You're like, wait a second, doesn't that person love me anymore? Like, even though I don't want to be with them and they don't want to be with me, they should still want to give to me. Everybody should. Huh. Interesting. I, I never thought of it that way. That, that paints me in a very narcissistic light. Thank you so much. I, no, I don't. <laughs> but you no. didn't choose to the way your parents raised you. Like, it's just, it's oh, part of, sure. it's part of, you know, what made you who you are. And you grew out of it, obviously. You know, you you evolve and you take the pieces from every interaction, like you learn from every interaction you have in life, something good, something bad, but you learn some things. So mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. And I would say specifically at the time, yeah, I was more self-centered than I am now, you know, as people in their 20, young, you know, younger twenties are. As I am oft to say, I'm going to throw a push pin in this bitch right there. Come back for part two with Tristan episode 268. Um, thanks for listening to Susu Studio. Live long and prosper. Make better choices. Get better results. Not all millennials are self-centered, I guess. Figured out me and the man in black. Well, I got cash.